Uh, we're in chapter 17, if you can actually find that in your Bibles, uh, iPads, phones, watches, or the handout that we left you as well. So, chapter 17. To, get, to catch us up on, I'll stop and we'll pray right before we actually pick up the text we're going to develop tonight. But it starts with this. And Elijah, the Tishbite, we've talked about Tishbites and what it means to, to bite one. Uh, in the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Achav, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be rain these three years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Karit. Try that word, Kherit. Come on, give it a try. Kherit. See? It's, it's, Dan, you should listen to Deborah because it'll make you feel like there's some sort of justification. Kherit. Um, which flows into the Jordan, Jordan. And it will be, that one's for Dan, just to even it out. And it shall be that you shall drink from the brook, which I have commanded the ravens to feed you there as well. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. And he went and he stated by the brook, Kherit. Uh, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat, so they brought him sandwiches, in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And we got all the way to verse 7 where it says, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Pray with me and let's just, let's just let God develop as we move forward from there. Oh, God, you are so good, and what a treat, what a gift it is to be able to enjoy you, to celebrate you, to delight in you, to be in your word, and to learn. And so here we are now, Lord, and we are just so thankful that we have this beautiful cafe and this warm room, and we are able to eat giant bowling ball-sized grapes and sugary things and to smile and laugh among beautiful faces and to be able to enjoy sweet fellowship with each other. And as even, even as you said, in, as we've read in Psalm 133, Behold how good and how pleasant, beneficial, encouraging, rich it is for the brethren to, to dwell together in unity. And I just pray that would be the case tonight. But Lord, more than us just sort of being united and kind of hanging out and enjoying, Lord, I pray that we would be, uh, we would submit ourselves to the surgeon's theater, to the table, Lord, and to let you do whatever surgery you want on each of us. You know those things that need to be removed. You know those things that need to be healed. And you know those things that need to be transplanted. So Lord, I pray that for each of us in our lives. I pray that your word would burst open and come alive for us. Color in the black and white. Draw us in and may we have so much fun in your word tonight. And I just want to commit this night, redeem every second we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority. We left Elijah, as we see here, Eliyahu, by the way, uh, Eliyahu means the Lord is God at the brook Kherit. Kherit, by the way, means cutting or carving. And that's interesting because I want to remind you, if you think about this guy, Eliyahu, Elijah, you recognize if you know very little about biblical characters, and everybody started there, by the way, uh, the, the one thing that most people tend to recognize is that this was the guy that did the sort of toe-to-toe against the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth, 850 prophets on one side and Elijah Eliyahu on the other, uh, and a place called Mount Carmel. We'll get there in a couple chapters, actually in a chapter. 
We kind of get that. We recognize this is the guy that had the chutzpah to, to stand against not just 850 false prophets, but 850 false prophets on payroll. So, I mean, this guy is, I mean, this guy is taking a stand against the people who are sanctioned by the king and his wife. And now, the king, by the way, for what it's worth, it's kind of important to note, the son of Amri, he's the most wicked king to date, had a horrible dad named Amri, but nothing like his boy. His, his son has surpassed him in every way. And God has even said in this chapter, as if it were a small thing, that he's gone so far out of his way. To, and, and imagine God telling us this in a way that's like he's still showing love and compassion, but saying, but if all the things he did to hurt me and irritate me and to challenge me and get in my face. He made it worse by marrying this gal named Jezebel. And he goes, and Jezebel, now what we don't know about Jezebel, it's important to know just a couple things. Her dad's name is Ethbaal. They get the idea, Baal, like the false god, who, by the way, was the high priest of Baal until he actually wound up taking a small career change. He wound up becoming king. How did he do that? Well, he murdered the current king prior. And so, and then he goes, and you know, I'm high priest, and da 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 blah, ah, And he kills the guy and then takes his throne. In that, this is in the area, I want to make mention of the area of Sidon. Don't miss that. Does anyone know where Sidon is today? Yeah, that's okay. You really don't have to know. Uh, this isn't a geography class. Uh, Sidon, Tyre and Sidon are the areas north of Israel proper today in the areas of Lebanon and North Syria. They're in that area to this day. But note the fact that the, so what you have is a psychotic, false priest, king, who killed people who were in the lineage of good friends with Solomon and David, for what it's worth. Because Hiram was, who was the, you know, who was the king that sort of was the most profile king of prior. He was a guy who actually helped Solomon build a temple. And he was very kind to help David actually as well. He donated what was necessary for David to build a palace. They were good buds. So when this guy kind of kills that lineage and takes over, there's a very weird dynamic, as you might imagine. But understand that Yezebel has declared war on Eliyahu and anyone who's going to stand. Matter of fact, what we're going to read later uh, next chapter is that she just goes mental and just starts killing anyone that's a prophet of the living God. So remember, Sidon. Quick question. You ready? Show off here. Where is Jezebel from? Oh, that was so disappointing. That wasn't even whelming. That was underwhelming. Let's try that one more time. Where was Jezebel from? Sidon. Thank you. So she was Sidonian. Did you get that? That was really simple. Now, I want to reckon. Now, here's the situation. We left Eliyahu. He goes, and this guy, we don't even read before this point. We don't have any intro other than the guy just sort of pops out of nowhere in the beginning of this chapter, shows up in front of a king. You can't imagine that's got to be easy. And he says, it's not going to rain for years until I say so. Because God told him that. And then God says, now get out. And you can see him going, bye. And off he goes. And imagine how weird that would be for the king. He's like got weird people kind of coming in to keep him entertained. There's no cable yet. There's no satellite TV. There's no Netflix. This is as good as it gets. And he's like, this is a weird thing. And so 
He kind of looks, and then something starts to happen. Well, I should say something starts to not happen, and that's rain. So imagine a guy just sort of shows up, and who knows how many people sort of show up and say, oh, I just want you to know that birds are going to fall out of the sky and monkeys are going to fly out of my ears. And you know, oh, that was very entertaining. Thank you. But this guy just, you know, okay, there's not going to be rain until I say so for years. And then, poof, out he's gone. And you can see the king go, did you, just, did you, did you see that? Did that happen for you too? And, and then it doesn't rain. For a long time, for a really long time. Well, what we'll find is three and a half years. So while, and I want you to be reminded, we have to be salting the meat with this even before we cook it, that Elijah is the prophet, Eliyahu is the prophet who listens. He hears God say, now go, go, go tell the king that. Now imagine if God told you that. If God just said, Agnes, because by the way, I just love your name. The despicable me thing probably has made it even more fun. But, you know, Agnes, go to the queen and tell her that it's not going to rain until you say so. And it's not going to rain for years. Imagine you're like, uh, how exactly am I going to go about doing that? I mean, do you think it was any easier 3,000 years ago to go and show up at a king like this? Who, by the way, has already be able to, he's, he's gotten the throne because the last guy committed suicide. And then his dad took the throne from that. And, and it, just, it just gets weirder by the moment. You can imagine he's always on the lookout for someone trying to wipe him out. So you just kind of show up there and go, oh, by the way, while you're at it, if you're going to go and see the queen, she's probably in a hurry. So just run up to her real quick. <laughs> That's going to work out well. And then just say, this is what's going to happen. And then run out as fast as you came in. And so get this. We left Elijah at the Brukhari. Then God says, get out. Get out of there. And I get why. Because if nothing else, the king's wife is going to start killing every prophet, at least the ones she can get her hands on. There'll be a guy named Obadiah who we found is actually hidden some. We can be thankful for him. And so this guy's at a brook. Now, at the brook, what we read is he's being fed by ravens. Anyone of you familiar with a raven? Again, there's seven, eight different uh, species of raven in Israel to this day. What, I mean, are they vegetarians? What kind of birds are ravens? Yeah, they're actually predatory birds and even more so scavengers, like a vulture. So... Imagine this, since we're not in a place like that, imagine, Ugo, here's what I want you to do. Run and go tell the queen or Deborah. Let's just make it even more fun. Deborah, go run and tell the queen, this is the judgment. And when you say so, it's going to start to rain again. Um, and, or you're not going to have an electricity or imagine all the other things you could say. Uh, you're not going to have any water in this country until you say so. And then run out. And then you're going to go run and you, I want you to go hide in some place really far away from London, like Croydon, and then, uh, sorry, and then rats are going to come and feed you flesh. And you go, oh, that's perfect, right? You know, and, and but bread, and, but, and, and that's just, I mean, it doesn't tell us what kind of flesh. It doesn't say that it was fresh flesh or old flesh, but we read about ravens. They like pluck out your eyes when you're dead to nibble on. I mean, they're not the kind of bird that I think that's the one I want bringing me sandos in the morning for what it's worth. But just the same. But he's, I mean, so that means twice a day he gets to hear this flapping sound and as he hears the flapping sound, he's like, breakfast is coming, you know. And, but then as it's a drought everywhere else is it's not going to rain, he's beside a brook. And the nice thing about a brook versus other things is it tends to make quite a bit of noise. And so imagine that he could close his eyes at night and be reminded of the faithfulness of God because he can still hear the one place that there might still be water. Now, some of you are aware of the fact, I actually live right by the river. 
so stoked on that. When I used to live by the ocean, so it's a very small step down in that sense, I used to hear that big crash and the seals make their goofy noises and the seagulls laughing because they, they only laugh, right? And then they make that ah sound. That's the grandma gulls. But the uh, at night, I can hear this sound and I can tell you when the tide's dropping or rising quickly because it makes a very distinct sound. I can tell you when a uh, clipper goes by because of the type of waves that it leaves. I mean, those things are just very distinct sounds. And the reason I say that is, is that he can still be a prophet who's hearing. And he can hear things that will bring him comfort. He can hear the flapping of a bird that probably the day, but now let's face it. If God had actually made another type of bird, like let's say I'm going to have turkeys. I know they don't normally fly, but I'm going to have this one fly and drop it off. Well, here's the problem. You might not just eat the flesh. You might just actually eat the bird. You know, one thing is you're not going to actually eat the raven. So that's, you know, and, and ravens, because they tend to circle about the time you're about to die. I would imagine in any other context, he would be freaked out to see a raven. He'd be like, oh, my time's close. But not, and I remind you, we don't have here that he knows that there's another assignment for him. We don't have here, he's like, I was like, this is what you're going to do, but wait, more is coming. Like some of us might actually have that sense. We don't read any of that. Up to this point, he's been faithful to tell, tell off the king, if you will. And he's been faithful to go and wait for further instructions. But here's the hard part. He's waiting a long time. And while he's waiting, it's not raining anymore. And he's aware of that. And that would be really cool except for what it tells us in verse 7, which is that the brook dried up. Which means that that big, loud sound of comfort coming from the only water that he's aware of at the moment starts to drop. It starts to drop and get quieter and quieter and quieter until he's scooping puddles. And then it starts to crack and dry and turn to dust. And there's no silence like the silence that comes after a sound you're familiar and comforted by. And you notice it's vacancy. The sound of a friend, the sound of a loved one who's gone to be with the Lord. The silence that is even more silent, if that makes any sense, because of what you're familiar with before that, that used to fill the room. In some cases, you would have actually said, be quiet or stop or... You would have turned it down, but now you'd play it. You'd just play it. You'd do almost anything just to hear it one more time. And I'm sure that's kind of where Elijah is. But here's the sad part is in all of this, Elijah's been only obedient. We don't read any disobedience in this. And he's getting dry. He's getting really dry. And he's just waiting for the next word from God and he's not hearing anything. How long do you wait before you start to wonder, right? What have you done wrong? What do I need to change? And he waits and he hears nothing. You may not realize that God's answering in that nothing because he's asking, what am I doing wrong if that would be the case? And he's hearing nothing. Where do I do now? Nothing. But there's no word from God and he waits and he waits likely for years. He's thirsty, but he's listening. And that takes us actually to verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord didn't come to him while the brook was actually still flourishing or abounding or babbling. 
He didn't come to him when the brook started to, sm- to get smaller and started to diminuize. The God didn't speak to him when it actually got to the point where he was just watching this little trickle now come down. He didn't, God didn't even speak to him at that point yet when it actually got to the point where the ground was, was still wet. But now the brook dried up and the idea of it now is it's completely waterless. And at this point, it's an issue of life or death and now God speaks. And the word of the Lord came to him again. And again, he's the prophet who listens. And it says, verse 9, Arise, go to Zerifat. Try that word. Zerifat. Zerifat means refinery. Where you stick the metal in the fire to remove the dross. The less valuable metals to get to the pure, beautiful, rich metal that you would want. That is for your working. Notice he's gone from a place of cutting to a place of refining. It'll happen to you too, by the way. But look, read the rest of the verse. Arise, go to Zerifath, which belongs to what? Sidon. Now let me ask you, what do we know about Sidon? Sidon. Yes, it's the place of Jezebel. It's the place where the king is Jezebel's dad. Super psycho ex high priest Eth Baal. This is where he has to go. Go to go sorry to Zerifath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow to provide for you. Wait a minute, what? I'm going to ask a woman who has no husband to provide for me. Shouldn't I be the one trying to provide for her? I'm the man of God here, right? How in the world am I actually asking ministry from a woman who should be clearly in need? I want to remind you, we're in a famine here. Comes, comes part and parcel with a, with a drought. You know, nobody's really eating anything. How in the world is this working? Does this make any sense at all? But worse than that, you're sending me. So get the idea. Some guy actually comes here, blows up, you know, one third of the underground from, let's, let's just say, and, and, and let's just say he happens to be from, let's just play it out, Iran. And as he plays it out and he's just like, and he happens to be the prince of Iran. He's, you know, he's the son of the king of Iran or the president of Iran. And, uh, you know, like the guy that was before that said he was going to wipe out all of Israel, Ahmadinejad. And so he's just like, oh, I'm going to blow you all up. I hate you. And he blows up and he just starts killing anything that's called Christian. And then God says, Bruno, I'd like you to go to Iran. And you're thinking, wow, if the kid was this bad, dad's got to be worse. And the kid's got limited power. Dad's got infinite power in his own country. Am I really going to go there? But it gets worse. Yeah, because there's an old gal, a gal who has no husband, and she's going to take care of you. How in the world am I going to go and run into Iran and go, hey, first of all, I'm just looking at who lost their husband. Just check in. Okay, who cooks really well and has lost their husband? I mean, how do you do that? Do you put an ad? There's like no website, right? It's kind of like looking for lonely widows or something. It's like, where do you go with this? But it's like, understand, God throws out this thing and he really throws a doozy on him. It isn't Israel anymore, but I want to make note, it is still part of what God promised back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, when God actually lays out the limits for what he actually promises, which by Israel has never claimed all that land, it is actually part of the boundaries. It's in the boundaries of the promised land. It's just never been claimed by Israel. Solomon, by the way, loved women from there. First Kings chapter 11 said Solomon loved lots of foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. He went to the Moabites, the Amorites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, and any other gal that was foreign that worshiped another God. Kind of the idea. 
Again, don't just believe me. Never just assume what I'm saying is right. Search the scriptures because I'm having a little fun here. Now, what we read in the four verses later, 1 Kings 11 verse 5, is that they led Solomon's heart away. And it's when he starts to say that, it says Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. It's the first one listed, by the way. That should tell you something. Uh, in verse in chapter 11, verse 33, when God makes mention of it, he says, because they have forsaken me and worshipped. And the first one God mentions is the same, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, the goddess of pleasure, for what it's worth. And it tells us for what it's worth here, the last mention of Sidon, it shouldn't surprise you, back in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 31. And you actually may have that on your sheet. Does it go back that far? Look at what it says. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took, his, took as wife Yitzbel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. That was the last time God mentioned it. It was not a really, like, yay moment in Scripture. And yet, there's somebody desperate. And there's someone desperate in enemy. Please hear this. There is somebody helpless and desperate in enemy territory. And it's going to take a man of God with faith to go there. Who else would you send? She's helpless. He doesn't know that she's about to collect sticks to die. All he knows is she's supposed to take care of him. It's like the wilderness of souls and God's going to send him there because there's a reachable woman facing death. And God knows it. Even though it's enemy territory, God still owns the property. And he's aware of every person there. And there's a woman there who's really looking for an answer. And God's going to actually make a house call. Jesus is going to mention this particular widow in Luke chapter 4. And it's going to upset the Jewish people in the synagogue in Nazareth so bad they want to throw them off a cliff. Uh, Luke 4.26 for what it's worth. Jesus, by the way, the only time he actually leaves Israel proper is to go to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Luke 15, 21, I'm sorry, Matthew 15, 21 tells us about a girl, interestingly enough, a woman who goes because her daughter's possessed. Some of you are familiar with the story. So guess what? Elijah heads directly into enemy territory for God's provision. What? Verse 10. So he arose and he went to Zerophath. I remind you, refinery. And when he came to the gate of the city, notice he hasn't even entered the city yet. Indeed, a woman that was there gathering sticks and he called to her. Now, when you're in the middle of a drought and you see someone gathering sticks, there's only really one, 3,000 years ago, there's only one logical thing. She's going to go and try to make one last fire. I mean, that was way before Ikea and things like that where you got those really big vases and you stuck sticks in it because that was decorative. Anyways, what do I know? Uh, I'm a boy. Sticks are for chasing people and hitting them in the head with it. Uh, anyways, so here she is. She's gathering sticks, and so he calls out to her. Now, get this. Now, there is a there is a cultural aspect where to entertain somebody in the Middle East to this day is actually it's a greater dishonor not to entertain a stranger than it would be to actually entertain a stranger. But it would be in much much of the same culture where that is, like, for instance, a place like Saudi Arabia. If a guy called to a woman and she responded back, she could actually be executed for speaking to a stranger. That's a man, for what it's worth. Uh, so imagine, he kind of goes to the gate. Now, mind you, this is enemy territory. He's in Zarephath now. He's had to head up, for what it's worth, a couple hundred miles. And as he heads up now, he kind of sees this woman, and she's gathering sticks. And he goes, ah, oh, 
Could you bring me a little water in a cup that I might drink? Please? He's not entered the city yet, and he still see, and he sees a widow. Now, I don't know if he knows she's a widow. Traditionally, men might carry the wood. Maybe it's the fact that she's gathering wood. He promised a widow would help provide for him, and the first person he seems to see is a widow. She's gathering sticks. That would have been formerly fruitful branches that are dried now. And he seems to make the most insensitive request. Because what is he asking for? Water. Why is that such a big deal? We're in the middle of a drought. And it isn't like anyone has it on tap. So imagine he's like, hey, I know that, you know, no one's eaten for quite a while, but anyone got any steak? I mean, that's what he's asking. He's in the water in a life-threatening drought, and he's asking her for water. He's asking a stranger. She'll have to act on faith to oblige. Verse 11, and as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Yeah. Oh, while you're at, in other words, hey, hon, while you're at it, can you get me some bread too, please? You know, now imagine, now I, please figure, please figure this with me. That we have this rule. In case you ever do wind up going to a place like Israel with us, the rule is worst hotel first. Does that make any sense? Because if you take, if the first hotel you stay in is super nice, then all the rest of the hotels will look like you're slumming it. But if you stay in a dive the first night, any place you stay after, it's like, this is really nice. It's amazing the difference because the first place you have is to compare. Does that make sense? Worst hotel first. Well, I think God did a worst hotel first with, with Elijah at Yahoo because Elijah is going to have to ask for food. And you can imagine, he's like, but I've got to ask somebody in enemy territory. I've got to ask a Sidonian woman, with all due respect, culturally, a Sidonian woman. The last Sidonian woman I saw was Jezebel, and uh, not into that. But I've got to ask that gal to bring me food. But what God did is, what, what was the last thing that fed him? A raven. So it's like, hey, well... Had he not had raven's feed, maybe this would have been a lot harder. But it's like, at least you're not like a death bird bringing me food. So, you're a bird, kind of in death, but you're not a death bird, right? So, you know, so he's like, hey, well, can, can I get some water, please? She's like, oh, and she starts getting water. Well, while you're at it, can I have got a loaf over there somewhere? And <clears throat> so the second request is even more the case, because I remind you, God said he's gonna, she's going to feed you, not just give you a drink. So she says, look at verse 12, her first words. And she said, as the Lord, your God lives. Now, I think this is a more profound statement than if she actually said, the Lord, my God lives. And the reason is she knows that inside and there is a God that's not his and that he has a God that's not hers. And I kind of get the idea she knows there's a difference. Now to say as your Lord God lives, she doesn't say it about her own. The idea of it is, it's this sure. Something is such a fact. Like it could say, as you're standing, bro, as you're standing before me today, I tell you this is what happened. In other words, it was just that clear and it was just that real. That's the idea. And when you see several times in scripture, we'll see as the Lord lives. In other words, as you're as confident as we are both confident, your God's alive. This is also the truth. Does that make sense? Which I think is interesting because if she had said as well as the Lord, my God lives, she would have been as well, I don't know if my God's alive. I mean, I'm starving to death here. I'm about to make my last supper. And, you know, but, but your God, I think your God's alive. Is the Lord your God lives, which is a great place to start this. I, I don't have bread. 
Sorry. I only have a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for my son, myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. This is so, uh, I just, this sounds so West End to me for whatever reason. But it's like, she's like, you know, well, I guess we die from hunger on a full stomach. I'm not exactly sure how that works. But he's like, now I think it's interesting because they're all in. He's like, could you bring me some water in a cup? Because what good is it going to be if it's just in your hands? And can I have some bread in your hand, on the other hand? And water and bread. And she's like, well, I'll have some flour in a bin and some oil in a jar. Now, any of you make bread? Have you ever, I mean, I love the smell of baking bread, by the way. I actually love it more than bread. Uh, my wife is like carb queen. And she she can make she if if it's if you bake it she can make it, and uh, and she just and so I got her I mean just out of love because I love my wife I got her a bread maker, and uh, it was one of the best things that has ever happened in the house because it just she just you know throws the stuff in there and then goes on like holiday and comes back and there's bread, uh, and in the, in the interim while she's going doing things I'm smelling a house full of bread it's just awesome. Do you know how much, bread, how much flour it takes to make a loaf of bread? Now, now understand, when we're talking bread here, it's a little bit different because the bread that, if he's going to ask, could you bring me some, it must obviously be on stock, uh, on, on store, uh, because, in stock, because it takes a quite a while to raise. You're probably aware of that, of those of you who've made bread. Uh, so if it's going to be the kind that actually is, unleavened like pitas, a lot of that kind of stuff that's still very common in the Middle East. It actually takes about four good handfuls of flour that you have to mix with oil to make a cute little kind of pita, you know, the kind that you would kind of use to make a wrap with. The reason I say that for her to say she only has a handful of flour, that's really not enough to make even enough bread for her and her, her son to split. So imagine somebody's asking you for something out there. You know, they're kind of there. They're sitting there. They've got a cup, and you kind of look, and you can see, and you're like, hey, bro, can I, like, have, like, a fiver, you know, from a guy that's got a cup out there? And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm like, I'm looking at my cup. It's got, like, 85 pence, and I'm going to go somewhere and get, like, a cup of coffee and die. That's kind of the idea here. No. But that tells us is that both of these people have watched their sustenance trickle. And I wonder if God, one of the things God did by putting Elijah through this whole Kherit Brook experience, is he know what it's like to watch his sustenance get smaller by day. And I kind of get the idea that she's gone to that bin of flour when it was a lot higher, and she's watched it get lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. She's watched the oil get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point it's like, nothing's changed. I keep waiting for something to change and it hasn't changed. Well, I think this is it, son. I think this is all we get. Maybe in a much cheesier way, that's what it looks like when you check your balance about the 30th. You watch it through the month and you know bills are coming and you watch it get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. But let's face it, none of us here are going to question whether we're going to eat again. 
some of us may wind up eating again tonight. Elijah says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. It's interesting, the first thing Elijah addresses to this woman is her fear. Did you notice that? Not her disappointment, not her anger, not her frustration, but the fact is, why is she afraid? Can I just ask you that genuinely? Why do you think, of all the reasons, what do you think would be the most obvious reason why she would be afraid? Go ahead and throw something out. Don't be afraid. You know, I fully agree with you. She thinks she's going to die. It's amazing what that does to a person. The strongest, most mighty people out there that think they have it all together, the moment they face death, it is amazing how much more frightened they are. You could have everything, but if death is facing you, death is staring you in the face, does it really matter how much you have? How many people are cheering you on? How many people you have following you on whatever the thing is that you use in social media? I mean, does it really matter? And you know what's amazing is so many of those people that are out there that would hate to hear you actually just spout out the things that they think are just religious jargon. When death becomes a reality in their life, they get really afraid. And we get so offended, we wouldn't actually go to the bedside because after all, you know what that jerk said before that? And here's the prime moment where it actually makes sense. There was a guy named John McNamara. John McNamara was somebody raised in a Christian home. I didn't know him during any of that time. He actually was a worship leader uh, for a period of time. I believe he was a pastor's son or a worship leader's son, so he was sort of second generation, we would call a legacy. And uh, John McNamara, somewhere in his late teen, early 20s years, decided he was going to go and try a whole new route which didn't involve God. He went into college, university, and when he went into university, he found people that really sounded extremely intelligent and had a complete problem with God, and somehow it started to make sense to him. Well, John went in experimenting in an awful lot of areas, including the area of what he actually found himself attracted to. He just kind of opened the doors fully wide open. Uh, This was in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, and John contracted HIV-AIDS. In those days, of course, that was a death sentence. To this day, for the most part, it still remains much like that. But in those days, there was all kinds of questions because nobody even knew how it was transmitted and everyone was freaked out and everyone wore like hazmat suits, that kind of thing. And if you know anything about what that does to your autoimmune system, it's it's actually the most brilliant disease in the most horrible ways. Uh, Let me me just say this quick and forgive me for the, the, but it makes sense. It gets us back to where we are. In your body are things called T-cells. Some of you might be familiar with that. Your T-cells, in essence, are, if I can just make it plain, they're kind of the guards, the watchmen on the wall. They're the kind of things that if something kind of, like a pathogen, something kind of tries to make its way into the system, your T-cells, forgive me for the kind of crude idea, but kind of, in essence, sort of send a signal that says, hey, there's something a little of a concern here, and then, you know, so we should really do something about it. And so, obviously, if it's a cut, platelets are sent to help kind of create a scab. Uh, antibodies are sent, right blood cells and those kind of things to kind of attack the things so that it doesn't make a home in you, which is a great idea. T-cells are your friends. That's the idea. Well, what an AIDS cell does, in essence, is it actually goes and it it imitates a T cell. It actually presents itself as a T cell. And the body actually believes it is one. 
And as a result of that, when something, and that's why you don't die necessarily from AIDS, you die from what AIDS allows. Let me say it again. You don't die from AIDS as much as you die from what AIDS allows. That's why it's an autoimmune deficiency. Immune, you're immunizing against something. You're fighting against something. Deficiency, because it's not doing that anymore. So what happens is a lot of people that have AIDS, the way they die often is things like pneumonia. Something comes into their system and a T-cell, a good T-cell, would say, hey, let's attack that thing and let's drive that thing out of here that doesn't belong here. And then the body goes after it. Now the T-cells are like, oh, no, 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 that's cool. Just come on in. It's cool. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. And then what happens is the body gets taken over by it. By the way, I think there are things like that in the body of Christ too things that are refusing to actually call something bad that God calls bad and trying to get it into the church. But by getting into the church, it's things that destroy the body that they're actually letting and going, oh, no, 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 it's really not that problem. Don't, don't. I know that's what other people's, I know that's what those other T-cells say, but those old-fashioned T-cells, I'm the new T-cell. The new T-cell's in charge. And this is a cool thing. Well, and you get the idea what happens. Well, back to John's story. Well, what happens then is your body starts to react. And I mean, think about the things that happens when your autoimmune goes weird. I mean, you get, you know, the things like a lot of the allergies you get are, are your autoimmune misbehaving. And so your skin develops these horrible ulcers, these rashes, these horrible things that erupt, and they're just horrible and oozy. And, and so you get to this place where all you can wear is fleece, kind of like the stuff you would wear in a track suit. And that's all you can wear, and it's sort of cut off. Well, by the time I got to meet John, John was on his deathbed. And when John was on his deathbed, I had been told by some people, because during his days of running from God, he made it his ambition to make sure that anybody that believed in God was as uncomfortable as they possibly could be by it. Because he's like, oh, I was a worship leader, and I was this, and I was that, and that's all just full of it. And of course, then the colorful language started. Well, now you walk over, and when you, you go to this guy, this, this poor guy, he looked like he looked like somebody that was just covered in black holes. I mean, it was just, un and he couldn't sit and be comfortable. And he was, he was clearly at the edge of his breath. And, and he, you know, and we, someone had, you know, he had heard one of our sermons and he kind of went off about it. And he's just like, I dare that guy to come and face me, that kind of thing. Well, I did. I took his dare. Uh, and so, but he was at a point now where he was there in his bed and he knew that death was inevitable and he was scared to death. That's a dangerous way to put that, isn't it? But he was that scared. And, and you're looking and you're like, John, you're going to die. He's like, aren't you here to heal me? I'm like, yes, but not the way you're asking. And soon, uh, we would kept bringing up life and death and he didn't want to talk about that at all, reasonably. But I'm like, you're avoiding an inevitable topic here. This is the elephant in the room, buddy. You're going to have to look at this. And when John actually was willing to stare death in the face, he shattered in front of us. And he cried and he wept and he wept. And that hurt him so much because all of the muscles that it took for him to try to fight back those tears and all the pain and the way that he knew that he had hurt God's heart by what he was doing and the things that he had said that he was now reviewing that he was so ashamed of. All of that to say, ultimately, John gave his life back over to Jesus that night. Then asked if we would play a few worship songs. He made a couple of recommendations. Interesting. I Adore He was one of those songs. Um, or a song of its sort. We prayed the songs and John passed away right in front of us. He went to be with the Lord while he, we were singing these songs.
And the reason I say that is, is that death takes the strongest of individuals, the most outspoken and cantankerous and horrible people still have to face death and they don't need to go to hell. I don't want them to go to hell. I don't want anyone to go to hell. And Jesus doesn't either. What we read is that he desires all men to be saved. He's not going to get what he wants, but that is what he wants. And this woman's afraid. And Elijah taps into that and he just says, hey, don't be afraid. Go and do as you've said. (laughs) I know you think you're going to make that one last, your last supper and die. Can I still get that biscuit first? Can you imagine asking that? But God said, she's going to provide for you. And it's amazing. He's banking on this. Look at, go and do as you said, but bake me a small cake first. Look at, I'll just a small one. I mean, I mean, I know you only got a handful of flour. All you've really got in you is a small cake, but do that first, bring it to me. And then afterward, make some for yourself and for your son. You can see you're going, what? For thus is the Lord God of Israel. The bin of flour shall not be used up nor shall the, the jar of oil run dry until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. He's like, um, God just told me something and I need to tell you. You told me that my God lives. Well, then I want you to know that my living God, while you're facing death, my living God wants you to know if you're willing to take this step of faith, he's willing to cover you as long as you're going to need it. So she went away and did the did according to the word of Elijah. Why didn't God go to the widows that were actually in Israel? Dare I say that maybe he couldn't have found one that actually would have actually done what Elijah requested here? God was just looking for one person that was willing to do this, and he found her, and she was hundreds of miles away in enemy territory. Don't you find that a little strange? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he look in his church and go, how exactly is this trusting me? Well, she went and did according to the word of Eliyahu and she and her household, she, she and he and her household ate for many days. She provided for him. The bin of flour was not used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Eliyahu. So, Eliyahu. so many days, so what happened is he knew what it was like to watch the brook run dry. She knew what it was like to watch the bread run dry. And now the bread in the brook, well, the bread's actually flowing again. Praise the Lord for that. And so with that, then it says it happened. But that you think would be enough. He can move on to the next story. But he's going to basically spend this time, the, whatever, the second half, if you will, of the famine and drought's going to be basically with this gal. And then he's going to go hit the showdown. Let's close this up. Verse 17. It happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. Remember, she thought they were both going to die. She certainly didn't think it was going to be this way. She had prepared a last meal, verse 17. They were, and now it's her son. And I pray that none of you ever have to go through watching someone that you love that close die or a parent even worse, watching their own child die. But she's confused. Verse 17, or verse 18, so she said to Eliyahu, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? That's two things, notice. Even though God miraculously provided for her, she's still living off of the bread from the flour and the oil. Still in some of all, this a miracle does, isn't enough for her to actually think, well, wait a minute, you get this. Something really cool is happening with God, but over here, something really funky happens. And you go, I just can't figure out how God could be good and do that. I get this. 
Hey, providing, thank you so much. Now I'm eating. It's a regular thing, and I'm used to it now. Regular bread, used to it. But this, no, this is huge. And I cannot figure out, and it's always something like this. I can't figure out how in the world you could be good and do this. And she looks at the man of God. She goes, you're his rep. You represent him. Make sense of this for me. Are you trying to actually just make my life more miserable by doing this? You kept me alive long enough to see my son die? Is that what you're doing? And by the way, Elijah's not going to be sure either. And there's something to learn from this. If you don't have an answer, don't make one up. You know, some of us, it's like we try to work it out as we talk. Have you ever had that? It's like, well, kind of maybe, it's kind of like, maybe what God's probably doing at this moment is, you know, it could be kind of like this. If you just, if you really kind of looked at it from this perspective, if you just kind of, I just, um, uh, you know, and it's like you haven't said anything for 15 minutes and you haven't stopped talking. I don't know what that means. What if you actually said the one thing, and please understand, when something really hurts like that, please hear me. You're going to have the opportunity to focus on one of two things. You're either going to focus on what you know or you're going to focus on what you don't know. Let me say that again. When you hit one of those moments when you are drawn to the mat because something really hurts, you are going to focus on either what you know or what you don't know. Here's the problem. If you focus on what you don't know, you are open to anyone giving you an answer. And that includes the enemy who is quick to accuse And you watch this. I don't understand. Of course you don't understand. How could you understand? And the enemy goes, well, let me tell you what. Then God must be bad and he's punishing you and it's probably your sin and he's humiliating you and he's getting you for something. You know, I mean, imagine how he works. Because I I guarantee you, if we're all honest, it's happened to every one of us in this room multiple times. The moment we don't get it, when we focus on what we don't know, that's the enemy's like, oh, that's my territory. But if you focus on what you do know, you know that God's good. And you know that he's smarter than you and stronger than you. And his plan is for your good to give you a future and a hope, not to curse you. So what happens when you come to me and say, I don't understand? What if I were just to say, hey, I don't understand either. Wouldn't it be refreshing? But I do know this, that God is good and that he loves you. And I know that he will help you have a peace that surpasses your understanding. Because if you have to wait to understand it for peace, that cue is a really long one. And it's like the wait time on that is, you know, Versus it's like, I, and if you ever ask God, God, I need a peace right now that's way beyond what I understand because I really don't understand this. Can I just say, I've just now equipped you for ministry for the most hurting. Cry with those who cry. Isn't that what James taught us? It's like, you know what? That really sucks. That really hurts. And I am... I know that God is good, but that doesn't mean this hurts any less. And I'm just going to cry with you. I know that someday this is going to make sense. And even if it doesn't, God still can give us peace in it. Well, Elijah in verse 19, he doesn't say, well, maybe it's this or that. He just says, give me your son. And by the way, we know that he's dead, but look at where he is. 
Verse 19, he said, give me your son. So she took, he took him out of her arms. It's one thing for a woman to crawl on your face and scream at you and it's a, because her son died. It's another thing for her to be holding her son while she's yelling at you. That's a very different world altogether. And I, I'll be honest, I've been in both. In one case, it was a beautiful little girl, the same age as my own. Going, you represent God. How could he do this? I don't know. But I know that he's good. How could he be good? You're asking me to understand everything God does. I am not that smart. By the way, that gal is an amazing, amazing place with the Lord right now, as is her husband. Should have destroyed him and they didn't. Some of you are familiar with the artist Stephen Curtis Chapman. Some of you are not. Um, he's a Christian artist. Uh, he's been around for a couple decades now, so he's more of, you know, kind of like your parents' music. But, uh, but he still writes things that are very current and still very relevant. He was actually partly responsible for us adopting our daughter uh, as he actually gave us a, a substantial amount of money to help us, which we wouldn't, I don't know where we'd have gotten otherwise. And uh, But he adopted a few girls himself, and one was exactly the same age as our daughter and just like her spunky, feisty, quick-witted and uh, one day, one of his boys, his two biological sons that were considerably older, one was driving, he was backing up a vehicle, and he ran right over her and killed her right in front of the whole family at the family home. What do you say to a guy like that? You know what you say? You say nothing. What words are going to be there at a moment like that? Hey, if the Lord tells you something, say it. But otherwise, don't just make something up. He wrote a, an album called Beauty Will Rise. I challenge you to take a listen to it sometime. The rough road he had to go through all of it, as you might imagine. But what God has done through it is actually some, he's brought some amazing redeeming things through the whole thing. And of course, when that happened, the world stopped. And he was on every imaginable interview show after that because everyone wanted to know what happened. What do you do as a Christian when your son runs over your kid in So look at she took him he took him out of her arms and he carried him to the upper room where she was where he was staying brought him to his bedroom laid him on his own bed and then he cried out to the lord he said oh lord my god have you also notice the word also have you also brought tragedy on a widow with whom i lodged by killing her son he doesn't notice he doesn't ask why. Did you notice that? He's not asking for answers like that. He's like, I know I want to know why you're doing this. He's like, Is this really going to be the end of this? Is that where we're going with this? Because I need to know God. And we don't read that God answers. So you know what he does? He stretches himself on the child three times and cries out to the Lord and says, Oh Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. He's like, God, is this really the end for this kid? Is this really the end? And he hears nothing. What do you do at that moment? Do you need God to say, no, actually it's not. Do something about it. Because as far as the rest of the world's done, he's flatlined or done. It's done. 
And Elijah goes, is this really it? And he doesn't hear anything. He's like, well, if I'm not hearing anything, then I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing. All right, Lord, please let the soul come back to this child. Still nothing. Lord, please, my God, please let his soul come back. Nothing. Lord God, please. A third time. And how weird would it be for the boy to wake up and go, who are you and why are you lying on top of me? You know, I mean, what we know about him is he's a hairy guy with a belt on. You know, I mean, he must know the guy because they're lodging together. But he's like, this is what I thought. So Elijah, what does he do then? The boy's soul. Now, by the way, James makes clear, by the way, is the body without the soul, the spirit is dead. So is faith without works. Two things are required. Look at, let me just make this clear so we can close this. You are not a person with a soul. That never made sense to me when people try to tell me that. Oh, well, what is it? How do I contain it? Is it like a pet? Do I walk it? Do I, what do I do with it? You know, what's a soul? How do I feed it? You are a soul with a body. That's the part you cash in. The soul is who you are. That's the part that goes to stand before God. Praise God, I don't have to take this body with me. You could be thankful too. You know, I'm like, Lord, please don't let this thing go into heaven. If this is all I got out of heaven, it's going to be rough for me. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I, at this point, I'll take the little naked baby thing with the harp. I'll take that over this. But, but understand, it's like this part, this is just a tent. This part gets cashed in. This is just where I'm staying for the moment. And one day I'm moving to my permanent address. Funny when you fill out like a credit card application. Haven't done that in a long time. Permanent address. Heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven. You know, oh, is that where, should we send your credit card there? You know, just the bills. <laughs> Anyways, so, you know, so he's like, hey, mom. Remember, and, like, and here's the cool thing. Look at when somebody's really hurting, they're going to say stuff. I can't imagine when she when she said to Elijah, probably was pretty pretty so, probably sounded pretty mean. Would you agree? She's like, "What'd you do? Did you really bring? Did you, did you, did you, did you get my sin on me? Is that what you're trying to do? Is that what you're trying to do? You know, she's hurting. And the reason I say that is in a moment like this, when Elijah brings his son down, you can imagine him going, "Your son's alive." Oh, that. But you know, I mean, think about how you're like, "I told you so." You know, I mean, the things you could do at a moment like that, but he doesn't. And I'm really thankful for that. And by the way, we have nobody raising somebody from the dead up to this point. So it isn't like Elijah's like, now let's look back in Leviticus, what you do when somebody's raised. There's none of that. He has no precourse for that. So he kind of looks and he's like, Lord, well, this is a new thing. Let's try it. But get the idea here that there was, a, there was somebody who loved their son who died. And, and it seemed like God was silent, but God was going to raise him after the third. Did you get that? And you know what a response to all that? He goes, look at C. Your son lives. Look at, I'm the one who's listening, but because I'm listening, you need to see your son lives. And this is what she says. The woman said to Eliyahu, last verse, now I know that you're a man of God. Now you knew it? The whole bread thing and the oil thing, that wasn't enough for you, but this was what it took? Wait a minute. Notice the second statement. It says, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. She doesn't say that the word that's in your mouth is the Lord's. You get that? She's like, I always kind of thought that the word of the, that you were saying was actually your, your God's words. But I'm actually discovering it's the truth. Do you know what it took for her to discover that? Her son had to die. Now, who volunteers for that? Hey, we really, I really want this person to know that your word is actually true. Would you please kill their kid and then let me lie on top of them until they come back to life? Who volunteers for that? But we have this book to read to get that. Eliyahu didn't. He was just going to do something until he heard from God. And here's the point. 
is I can look back at this and from the perspective of eternity, this was all worth it. It was worth it because in the end of it all, I, I kind of expect to see this woman in heaven. How about you? I'd be, to be honest, I probably would expect to see the sun and I'd be like, what was it like to actually come back to life? And just to add a little fun to it, what was it like to come back to life and have a hairy guy laying on top of you while all that happened? How weird was that? He's like, yeah, totally about it, man. That was weird. You know, and it's like, and here's, you know, it's like, what would it be like for, I mean, there's so many other people you're going to, we're going to find later that there's going to be these situations. And it's like, man, what was that like? What was it like, little girl, to wake up and see Jesus at your bedside? And, oh, little girl, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, come on up, get on up. Lazarus, where did you go for those days? When, while you stinketh, so that when Jesus called on you, what was it like? Did you hear all of your name or was it just like the us by the time it got to you? And then you just, all right. And what was it like to take that first breath again? And what was it like to see your sisters go, oh, what? You know, what was that like? And Jesus like, I told you I was the resurrection and the life. Do you get it? You know, what was that moment like? Can we watch those moments in heaven? Would that be cool? Would it be like there's like Netflix in heaven, but it's like, you know, all right, today I want to go see that. You know, I want to see that moment. That would be really cool. You know, I don't think I'd run out. I'd be like, there's some of those moments. I think I'd play over and over and over and over again. The Legion. Well, that would be like the leper cleansed. I mean, what those moments where there's such tenderness and power wrapped up in the same moment. Well, we finished this chapter in a very different place than we left off last time. But I want to remind you, there's still a drought. There's still a very angry king because the last time Elijah was there, he was like, there's going to be no rain, and there hasn't been. So Elijah leaves the country. He's like, there's going to be no rain in this country, so I'm going to Spain. Well, maybe not Spain. They might be in a civil war soon. Let's go somewhere. You know, I mean, think about the idea. And the reason I say that is, is that God's not done with Ahav, but understand what he's doing in this is he's training Elijah watching the brook get smaller for him to actually have compassion with other people when they watch things trickle is huge. Watching what it was like to be fed by something so weird like a raven so that he could be ready to have a widow feed him. How weird is that? In enemy territory. And for him to cry out and go, God, this doesn't make sense to me either. I don't blame her for being angry. I don't want her to be angry at you. She doesn't even know you. I do, and I'm not even going to ask why. I know you're good, but is this really where it's supposed to end, or should I be doing something? Hey, when someone comes and says, hey, I, I was just diagnosed with cancer, what do you do? Do you do that? I mean, pardon me for saying it. Do you do that kind of cop out, Christian cop-out where it's like, well, let's just pray. God, whatever you want to do is cool. Do you go on the other side and go hype out and kind of go, well, I'm just going to keep, I'm going to scream and yell and shake and sweat until you have no more cancer. Well, what about before you pray for them, you pray first and go, Lord, what's the end? What, what, what's your intended end here? What part do you want me to play in that? Because I just, I know for some people taking the cancer away is good. What it's going to take for them to believe in you. And because that's the one thing you want, makes sense. There are others. Them having cancer is what it's going to take for them to believe in you. So I know that the number one thing is not cancer for you. The number one thing is for somebody to, to spend eternity with you. This is all part of the vehicle. Could you help me? Could you let me in a little bit on what part I should play in this? No. 
Now, if that kind of challenges where, you, where you've stood in your Christian culture, I just want to challenge you. Look at Scripture and see for yourself. The one thing God wants more than anything else is for you to be His. Jesus died on a cross not so that you could be free from cancer. Jesus died on a cross so that you could be His and free from sin, and free from the guilt of it. And He doesn't have a problem healing he just doesn't want a dog and pony show so that all that can happen is that people get that and then run away and have no more interest in him. That's What good is that to God? It's like wanting to spend the rest of your life with somebody, giving them a flower, and all they really wanted was the flower. You're like, dang, I was part of that flower. <laughs> this, was the, this was the good part of the deal. <laughs> you know, and, and you're like, well, man, that would really stink. And I wonder how many times that happens with the Lord where the Lord's really trying to reach out and we can interfere. God wants to give you a flower. Just nobody really wants us to be with you. So I want to just pray. And as we pray, I just pray that we would today recognize that God is teaching us through the school of Elijah here. And when we see these situations, can we be in that place where we're like, you know what, Lord? Is this the end you intend for this situation? And if not, what do you want me to do with it? And when somebody comes in, they're like, I want to know why. That's such a dangerous place. I want you to know who. I may not know why. But I know who. And somehow that all makes sense in the end. Will you pray with me, please? God, we leave this chapter with a son raised from the dead on the third uh, event of it. A man of God, of you, proven and your word proven true in his mouth. Your word proven true because a son was raised from the dead. And sometimes it does take a resurrection scenario to show that your word is still active and true. Sometimes it takes such the most horrible and tough and painful circumstances to validate your word for people. And to us, sometimes that doesn't even make sense how those two things can reconcile, but for you, that does. And I just pray, Lord, as we are in the school of you, we're your disciples, but learning from people like Elijah here, Eliyahu. Show us the wisdom in silence when necessary. And the wisdom of words, the right ones, said the right way when necessary. And show us, Lord, the essential critical necessity of being in constant prayer with you when these things arise. To seek from you, to be one like Eliyahu who listens. In the middle of people dying from the, the dryness of their souls, in the middle of people right now who are being flogged in their own pain, God, if we don't have someone like that now, perhaps it will be soon. Please let us be ready. Or those moments where show us the ministry of being and not just doing. Or even in that being, it's just being willing to feel the pain with them for a moment. And to reiterate that thing that we might feel seems insensitive, but is still true, that you're still good. And from an eternal perspective, we are functioning from a, such a small microcosm you are functioning from such an infinite space. 
please, God, please help us to understand that you are good even when we can't understand. And I just pray tonight, Lord, that we would be people who listen even when the brook seems to trickle to quiet, to dryness, even when you send us to places that would not make sense because someone there is trying to figure out who the right living God is, which God is alive, which God is speaking truth. And you call us to those places to represent. And in those places, we may take heed from people who have been hurt or can't figure something out. Don't let us lash back out at a person who doesn't understand but rather give us the compassion that is necessary to be able to elicit the, the comfort that only you, the God of all comfort, can issue. Please tonight, use us in that way. We volunteer. And even as we've heard tonight, Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, just like scripture promised. And you prove that all your word is true. And that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And if there's anyone who wants to say yes to that gift of Jesus tonight, pray this prayer with me tonight. God in heaven, I am a sinner. I am guilty in my own, my own resources and my own merit. But I believe that you sent, Jesus, I believe that you came to earth to take my sin upon yourself and to die on the cross so that it's all punished and paid for. And when you died, it was paid in full. And when you were buried, it was buried with you to never be resurrected again. But when you were resurrected, you offer me a brand new life. And I say yes to that, declaring you, Jesus, as my Savior, but also as my Lord. You're so infinitely smarter than me. So, Lord, even if I can't figure out, give me the faith to follow you, even when I don't know where you're going. And when things hurt and I would be tempted to try to focus on what I don't understand, Recommandeer my focus to where I should understand. Oh God, please, tonight, I'm yours. Jesus, in your name, and if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our amens. You've heard our responses tonight. Now, Lord, please, let us be people who first receive that great comfort, and then in that, issue that great comfort in your name. Amen. <laughs>